To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a British DJ spent years in an online romance with a man she never met. But who was he? We'll review the hit podcast, Sweet Bobby. Plus, it's the most successful fruitcake bakery in the world. So why was the company losing millions of dollars? We'll talk about the documentary, Fruitcake Fraud. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, my favorite mudslide companion, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And also survivor of the Exeter Holiday Parade on my scooter, when my little lights fell off midway through, and I almost became a news story. Congratulations, Laura Bricker. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Now, Kevin, we have a quick programming reminder. Do you want to let our audience know what that is? Starting on January 3rd, we're going to be going bi-weekly, meaning twice a week, not every other week. Yes, it could mean either. It could mean either. That's actually, so confusing. No, but it actually is a thing where it could mean either. Don't at me, people. It's true. All right. So we're bi-weekly in the summer, but we're bi-weekly starting in January. Semi-weekly. Yes. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> times a week. We're going to have two Crime Writers on episodes every week. Each one will look at one review, so you can listen any way you like. You we're can, twice weekly. Yeah. So you can... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> we, you can listen to uh, you know just the the episodes that you like. You can pile them together so you can do two in a row. It doesn't matter. You know, uh, we're just giving you more ways to listen and, and more crime writers on for your buck. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And I got to say, the response from the announcement last week has been kind of awesome. Yeah, people say that they really are looking forward to having even more Rebecca, Kevin, Lara, and Toby. I think uh, writer Elon Green said that we should be producing something like 25 episodes a week. That's the what Crime Writers oh. on Nation is demanding. Wow. Yeah, Elon should shut the fuck up. Because... I, just, I just want to know what Crime Writers on Nation <laughs> is willing to pay. Five-minute five episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to mention, um, regarding my intro, Lara and I did get together this week for chicken tenders and mudslides, a thing that we've uh-huh. never done before, and it was exceedingly fun. And where we got together was at the lo- one of the locations featured in this uh, season of Undisclosed, uh, the Puritan back room in Manchester, New Hampshire. And for those listening to that season, no, we did not see Bobby. Just wanted to mention that quick fact. You mean Bob? Bob, What yes. about Bob? Bob was not there. Uh, There's a hint. Bob doesn't exist. That's right. So he was not there at the Puritan Backrooms. Uh, so anyway, Laura Bricker, thank you for meeting me for Mudslides and Chicken Tenders. It was very, very fun. And it was very, very New Hampshire. And um, they have very, very good mudslides there. They do. Not an ice cream in sight, right? Nope. Nope. That's what they said. It was straight alcohol and ice. <laughs> 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 Toby, you should get one. They're pretty good. They're pretty amazing. I had a couple of peanut butter cups of mine as well. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot to do tonight, so I think we should just go ahead and start our first review. What do you guys think? Agreed. All right. Leading off. He leans in and he says something like, this is the craziest case I've ever seen. And you know what? He was right. In more than 15 years of journalism, covering everything from tax avoidance to terrorism, I've never seen anything like it. British radio host Kirat Assi began an online correspondence with the brother of a deceased friend. Her chats with his cardiologist named Bobby grew into a long-distance romance that lasted for years. But Bobby was full of excuses for not meeting in person, nor using his camera for online chatting. Obviously, I I did have feelings for him, whether they were the right kind of feelings. 
question mark, massive question mark. Karat found herself in a sophisticated catfishing scheme marked by years of coercive control that pushed her to her breaking point. After she finally discovered the deception, she learned the authorities were reluctant to do something. What do you think? I think she's been let down enormously by the authorities. And I think they should have rigorously scrutinized it and looked at whether there is an angle here. In the podcast Sweet Bobby from Tortoise Media, host Alexi Mastros dives into a complicated moral mystery about trust, love, and responsibility. After revealing Kirat's catfisher, the podcast attempts to uncover the imposter's methods and motivations. Spoiler alert, we are going to be revealing significant plot points for Sweet Bobby. So if you want to remain completely spoiler free, which I would highly recommend if you have not yet listened to this podcast, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So, Kevin, I have a question for you because this podcast, I'm just going to throw it out the gate. Like the first three episodes, there's a mystery involved. Right. And as we know from reading lots of mysteries, covering lots of mysteries, when you are talking about a mystery that's a whodunit, there's a construction you have to do where you keep the person who did it a secret, but you have to drop clues along the way, right? Yes. However... One of the things that requires is that our host here had to tell us the beginning that this was a catfishing scheme. That like it could not be a secret. What do you think of the construction of the three episodes of this podcast? The first three episodes? Yes. First of all, you brought up two different things there. Revealing right off the top that it's a catfish. I mean, I think it's, it's really important because this was not going to be a surprise to a sophisticated true crime audience, right? Instead, we can now pay attention to the other signs of the scheme's complexity, right? We're not going to make it all the way to episode three and still be going, hmm, I wonder why Bobby won't turn his camera on. <laughs> exactly. So you get that right out front. Now you can start kind of thinking about, well, what's going on? Is this somebody she knows? Is this somebody she doesn't know? Is this a criminal syndicate? It's so sophisticated. You get caught in that. And what happens is that the person who it is is left out in plain sight, mixed among these different people. It's the cousin uh, Simran. And she is just listed with just a bunch of other people. And she comes in at certain points. And, you know, it was like when we find out who it is, the aha is good because, you know, we got a fair shake at trying to figure out who she was. Yeah, I was, by the way, completely stunned at the editing of these first three episodes because, Laura, you just wrote a mystery novel, right? Mm -hmm. You know that when you have a reveal, there's a construction there. In some ways, you've got to do it backwards. You have to, like, you know who did it, so you got to make it fair for the reader, but you Mm -hmm. also have to, like, make it so it's a surprise or try to make it so it's a surprise. Right. So I figured it out like maybe five minutes before the reveal. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so fucking stupid. It was right there all along. But I actually went back and listened to episodes one, parts of episodes one and two, so I could see how I missed it. This thing was edited so well because Alexei does actually list a bunch of characters who were involved in the scheme. And they include both fake characters of the catfisher and real people in Mm -hmm. Karat's life that, like, it is just beautifully edited, beautifully written, beautifully constructed. What did you think about that? Because I just found that to be actually, honestly, a feat of narrative construction. Yeah, because, you know, you go in knowing that this is this huge catfishing scheme. And I guess even though these people were out in the open, even though we know that um, Simran is the person behind this catfishing scheme, As you're listening to it, you're just like so caught up in the magnitude of the deception that for me, that actually sort of was like a deflection from trying to figure out the mystery in terms of looking at people close to Kirat, because I was just like, who the heck would be going to these lengths to carry out this deception? You know, and I'm listening to you know, they have family members and friends in common and they live within this small community. And I was so caught up in that, that I didn't follow the mystery that was in plain sight as much. But as you're talking about going back, I mean, it was there. It was just, this story is just so off the walls that it's hard to know which part of it to focus on as you're listening to those first three episodes. Because I mean, for me, I'm just thinking like, 
why would somebody go to these lengths for what was it, 10 years? Yeah. It seemed to me like a slow burn, like maybe the first few years weren't meant to be that close a relationship and it was abandoned and then sort of got pulled back in for some weird reason. I don't know. It was very, very strange. Because there's the part where Bobby dies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Toby, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's what, you know, when they keep talking about how it's sophisticated and stuff. I mean, I think that's part of it is that it, it seems to me a little bit like cult indoctrination. There was an article in The New Yorker about... um Scientology and about a, a film director whose name I'm going to completely space, but he gets to this point where they're like, oh, and now you can learn the big secret. And he like opens up the case and there's a piece of paper that says, you know, there were giants that came out of volcanoes, you know, <laughs> hundred thousand years ago and, you know, whatever. And he's like, is this a freaking joke? Yeah, Leah but, Remini and, says she had that same reaction when yeah, she learned yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the idea is that you build up to that point when you get hit with the the crazy stuff. You know, and again, I, I mean, I think that's one of the big questions that comes out of it and that she's trying to kind of fight against is, how are you so gullible? How did you get put off all these times when, you know, he has a stroke, he has a heart attack, he doesn't want to turn on the... The camera, he doesn't want you to come and visit him. He's in London, but he doesn't want to see you. And it's like, come on, like, you got to know. But it's but it's not. It's because it's this very long game that by the time this craziness starts happening, she's already so sort of emotionally and mentally committed to it that it takes a lot to, to back away at that point and say, these last few years have been bullshit. Like, that doesn't even really go through your mind. The slow burn, the slow buildup. Like, I don't know how, if that was like Simran's original plan is like, I'm going to lure her in for four years and then I'm going to like <laughs> hit her with the big stuff. But that's the way it worked. And if you've got the patience to do it that way, I think it really gives you a, a better chance of, you know, quote unquote success in this kind of thing. I want to ask another question about that, Toby, because I think the podcast also, this is again a construction thing. And I, I mean, I think that what I'm revealing here is I think this thing was just superbly edited. The first episode really does demonstrate in the first like 10 minutes who she was before this, right? So this idea... And I think that, you know, it is so easy when you see these stories, especially like in the TV show Catfish or whatever, to be like, these are vulnerable people, right? You get pulled in by these people who are catfish. They're just lost or whatever. That's not who this woman was at all. And it reminds me a lot of like, do you know Mordecai, where you had these like incredibly strong, accomplished women who kept getting pulled in by the same dude over and over again. But this podcast in particular just really establishes her as strong, healthy, vivacious, everything in the world going for her. And like no time in this entire story was I blaming her in any way. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. She comes across, at least to me, I thought she was very sympathetic and smart. And I think the fact that she is that way is what makes this really work. Because if it was like she was just like some pushover and she was super gullible or, or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, well, they took advantage of somebody who was there to be taken advantage of. Yeah. In this case, it's like, no, it's like this smart, vivacious, you know, woman just got and ripped brave, into this thing that just, out. yeah, brave for doing the, uh, for this podcast, certainly, you know, she gets pulled into this. I mean, that's the story is that, is that it's that, you know, sinister and effective or whatever that that's sort of the shock of it. Now, Laura, but a lot of it, too, is Alexi's setup, right? Because he is framing this in a certain way. I mean, he wrote and produced this thing. He's the reporter. So we have to give him credit, too, for the way he's telling this story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way that he's telling the story, it kind of reminded me of like the same sort of narration that we had in like The Missing Crypto Queen. And there was one other podcast that kind of reminded me of. But he's very empathetic in the storytelling and also lets Kirat take sort of a center stage in the way that she is retelling and bringing us into what happened to her. So in the way that it is set up like that, you know, we, I mean, at least me, as I was listening to it, was like, how the heck could you be in this for this many years? But when you hear it, you can say, okay, you hear how she kept having an answer given to her that kind of seemed plausible and she'd believe it. And then she was relying more on Bobby. But you also, I think for me anyway, it came away feeling 
the real impact that it was having on her life as this sort of coercive control component took over with losing weight and the job and everything else that was going on. So you could really just empathize with what it was like to be her during this period where Bobby was communicating with her. Bobby's always calling me and it got to the point where like I tried to call you who you're on a call with. Oh, your phone line was busy. Who are you talking to? He knew everything I did. He knew absolutely everything I did. Now, Kevin, before we move on to the format change in the podcast, I want to ask you about two incredible scenes. All right. One is that Kirat runs into the real Bobby in a club near the beginning of the scam when she kind of gets back into his life and they're talking a lot. The sliding door scenario. Yes. Yeah. What did you think about that scene, the way it was presented, and the fact that it actually happened in real life? I was trying to explain to him, it's me, Kirat, Kirat. And he's just like looking at me like I was saying, he was like, I don't know, I don't remember. And I was, didn't want to embarrass him. And I thought maybe he's had a few too many to drink because he looked a bit kind of spaced out. Oh, I really enjoyed hearing that being retold because, yeah, it is so tantalizing, right? You have to think about if she had a longer discussion with the real Bobby and figured out that there was something else going on. Well, none of this would have happened, right? Or it wouldn't have gone on like it did. And so to have a self-awareness that this was a big moment and an opportunity missed, you know, because a lot of other catfishers or catfishing victims don't ever get that close, right? If somebody's using someone else's photo, they don't usually run into them at the supermarket or other places like that. It's designed to sort of be, you know, far enough away that it's plausible for the identity, but not so close that you're going to run into them in a bar like she does. So I was like, oh, God damn it, it was so close. And especially, uh, you know, when you hear the rest of the podcast, you realize, oh, yeah, man, that was there was your opportunity to really figure it out. Earlier this year, I talked about one of my other favorite British podcasters, Joshua Baker, and his incredible use of tape in a scene in I'm Not a Monster, mm-hmm. where he intersperses a story of Sam, that Sam tells uh, with the prison she was being kept in and with his tour of that prison to see if her story was true and the going back and forth. This podcast beats that use of tape in a way that I cannot believe because that was one of the best uses of tape I've ever heard in a podcast with, to me, the inner cutting of the story that Kirat tells about her confrontation with Bobby at his house. The real Bobby. And his version of the story of Kirat showing up at his house and confronting what she thinks is her Bobby, who has let her down. And I'm thinking, this lady needs help. Who is she? And I was like, it's me. And he was like, I don't understand. You've got me confused for my brother. My brother and I are often confused for the same person. Uh, maybe you think I'm my brother, Jay. I was just confused. I was just like, why are you being like this? Kevin, what did you think about that scene? Oh, I really liked it. Again, I I think one of the strengths of it is how it was presented with the going back and forth. Because now we're introduced as listeners to the real Bobby. And, well, the real Bobby. lovely. Yeah, and the real Bobby is introduced to uh, Kirat. And so his uh, perception of what the hell has been going on. And you also got to kind of feel for him a little bit. Because here's this stranger who shows up at his door. Everything he says is going to come across as a win. lie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he can't win, even when his wife comes out and backs him up. To frame it, to you know, to be bouncing back and forth between their recollections of what went on, I thought was very dramatic. It put the urgency in the scene. Laura, when I heard that scene, I was actually walking to the house for my walk, and I was like... Oh my God. Oh shit. I had both headphones on. <laughs> I mean, did, did that, there was like a, just a lot there. It was like this sort of very live confrontation. Did you experience it that way or was it just me? Because it felt incredibly cinematic to me. It's never just well, you, it, Rebecca. It might have been just you, Rebecca. I mean, <laughs> I think it was, it was definitely cinematic and there was definitely that element of like, oh, wow, we're going there, we're doing this. But I also have to say, like, I kind of had started because we had like three episodes of buildup of the catfishing scheme. And I did start to feel like it was dragging a little bit. So by the time we got to that, I was like, oh, okay, finally, something's happening. So that was more me like, okay, we're shifting gears now. And now we're going to get some answers. Hmm. You know, I feel like I came away from this not having the answers that I was hoping to have in terms of the resolution as to what would possess somebody for that many years to continue this charade? And I felt like we got stonewalled with that. 
And I guess I had hoped that that was sort of like, okay, now we're having a turning point. We have this information. Now we're going to actually learn why. Yeah. And I still don't really feel like we, I mean, I can guess, I can be like, well, it's, it's like a control thing. It's a thrill to like pull off. But I guess I wanted a little bit more. There might not be a why, Laura. I mean, there just might not be one, Might just be like, hey, we're super fucked up and we're going to do this because we can. Toby, (laughs) there was a moment where I actually thought of you when I was listening to this. Oh, no, because I'm catfishing? (laughs) No, no, no. No, when when Kirat was describing something that, you know, was one of the examples that made her believe, which was her being on the line with Bobby and choosing baby clothes for his son and then seeing pictures of the baby wearing the clothes and and Mm -hmm. what Simran was actually doing was finding pictures of the real Bobby. uh, and and finding sourcing the clothes that the real Bobby's baby was wearing, and then pretending with Kirat that they were choosing those clothes. I just was like, that's like Toby debunking a magic trick right there, which you would totally do. <laughs> yes, king of skepticism. I just kept thinking about that. The other thing I kept thinking about you, uh, Toby, was the journalism questions that I knew you would ask. And in your notes, you did not ask the one I thought you would ask, but you did ask one. Uh, one you want to just raise the journalism question that you put in your notes, and then I will throw back at you the one I thought you were going to ask. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. You know, it's one of those transparency moments when Alexi calls Simran and, you know, kind of gets the brush off. And then, he, you know, he's kind of reflecting on how the call went. And he says, you know, I guess ethically I need to tell her up front what I'm calling about rather than, you know, deceive her to, I don't get the feeling that that's been very consistent in the other, in a lot of other podcasts that we've listened to. I feel as though we've listened to quite a few things where people, even if they're willing to say that they're from a podcast or whatever, are often putting themselves across. I mean, I guess not often, but occasionally putting themselves across is something that they're not in order to get some tape. Yeah. I, I I mean, I think that's the ethical thing to do. Like, I agree with them. But I thought that was a, sort of an interesting moment because, you know, again, it's, I, it's not sort of a universal value. I think that's held for yeah. the journalists we've heard. It is a universal value held by good journalists, <laughs> that's yeah. for sure. So the, you want to hear the question I thought you were yes. going to have? I was just thinking this the whole time. So I just kept wondering, is Simran, did, does she have a mental illness? And are we talking about her? I mean, we're using her real name. First name and last name, right? She has not actually been charged with a crime as of the airing of this podcast, but she did admit to doing this thing, which is not a crime, but it is a real thing that she did. As far as I'm concerned, by the way, just for the record, I think she's fair game. I think it's completely fair to tell the story, but I could see another side. And this is the question I thought you were going to ask. Is this not a little bit of a Richard Simmonsing thing? She did not consent to being in the story. She may or may not be someone who has a mental health issue. And she is now, her name being out there and her job being out there and everything, she's now very much in the public eye as a result of the story. That is the question I thought you were going to have, Toby. See, I think the difference, though, is that Richard Simmons really didn't do anything. Hmm. Like, he just chose not to he didn't interact with people. He's just yeah. like, I've had enough. <laughs> and then Dan, who, you know, I've... We disagree on the this one. The highest regard for, well you know, as a podcaster, but in this particular thing was like, I need to hear from you. And Richardson was like, <laughs> I don't want to. Where in this case, you've got a woman who, like whether it's breaking a law or not, is she's admitted to spending more than a decade catfishing one of her relatives. And abusing. Using coercive control and just ruining this person's life. And so I think that's a little bit, it's a slightly different, like, you know, do you need to have her permission to talk about these sort of atrocious things she's doing? Because there's no way she's going to give it. And then just, just like stuff like this never gets told. It's yeah. just, you know. Exactly. So I didn't have a big problem with it, I guess. I'm surprised and I'm very pleased. Now, Kevin, the, the podcast did change format halfway through. Um, yeah. It became like a different show. It was a straight narrative show, a much of a mystery. And then it turned into... What Alexi describes as a real-time investigation, but if you're binging it, it certainly doesn't feel that way. Uh, what did you think of that format shift? Yeah, I think this is where the podcast loses its way. Four, five, and six, there, there's still sort of um, a narrative story that's told about Kirat's efforts to get some sort of satisfaction through the legal system and how that doesn't happen. But Alexi's also trying to find out about Simran's motives. And that's like something that you're not going to get unless she 
talks to you. Yeah, but even right? then, are you going to really get it? Well, I don't know. The closest, <laughs> look, we, we heard of a similar story, well told in Do You Know Mordecai. Oh, so great. Right? And so throughout those many episodes, we were kind of wondering, well, what's going on in this guy's head? What's cooking in his kitchen? And while it's left kind of open, then we get him. He comes in and sits down for an interview. And even though in the end we don't quite figure him out, it's not for not trying. Yep. Now, I'm not saying Alexi wasn't trying, but certainly when they went to air with the first episode, they did not have that piece of the puzzle. And it seems like the plan was, let's throw these episodes out there and something's going to happen. And nothing happens. Hmm. Nothing really happens. And so... I think when you start a podcast, you should know how it ends Hmm. and maybe let something magical happen that changes that. But the idea that, oh, we'll we'll find something now, we'll knock on her door, maybe something will change. I think that was folly. Follow up question. Yeah. If the framing of the second half had been her attempts to get justice, the coercive control stuff and the fallout with her family. Would you have liked it better if it had been uh, framed well, that way? Because we got all yeah. that stuff, and that stuff was very fucking satisfying. If we hadn't been promised something else, and we had been framed that way, and then we got all that stuff too, would would because by the way, the lawyer Indian restaurant owner guy was freaking amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe it's just a, a matter of presentation. Yeah, yeah I, if there was nothing about her motivations, we'd be like, well, how come you didn't try? I wonder what blah right. blah blah. Right, right. Because that is a big question. Yeah, yeah. and I do think you try to answer it, but trying to answer at third hand and I think that that is normally unattainable right 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 so Laura quick question for you the laws in England are very different than they are here with regard to abuse Mm -hmm. were you surprised to hear the coercive control is so hard on the books there yeah so first of all it was pretty freaking rage inducing to listen to what Kira went through when she went out and started trying to report this in terms of going to this police station and they're like oh we're sorry you have to go to the other police station and oh we can't handle it somebody else takes it and the police being like oh well she just has like mental health problems or whatever so I thought it was interesting I liked how they brought the experts in when we had the legal expert who talked about the British law where they can't prosecute for the catfishing but they could prosecute prosecute for the coercive control. And there is evidence to support that prosecution. And the fact that that has been a law in the book since 2015, I thought was was really interesting because, you know, we have domestic violence cases here. I've been involved in investigating domestic violence cases. And coercive control isn't necessarily something that you see people getting charged with here in the U.S., So, yes, you can speak to it as sort of a pattern of abuse and a style of abuse and a style of manipulation. But the fact that that was part of the British law, I thought was really interesting. And then this whole Malicious Communications Act that they referenced. So I thought that was interesting. But it was also just super freaking frustrating that she wasn't getting any relief in this case. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? I love it that it's on the books as a law. I mean, I know so many people who are in relationships where coercive control is the relationship and they just think it's like normal. Like coercive control is like every reality show relationship in the world. Like it's not cool when someone pretends to be sick just to get you back. Like that's actually controlling and abusive. Toby, one quick question for you before I review. This podcast does lean heavily on academics, experts. We do get a deep dive into some of the more like um, brainy parts of the science-y stuff here. Do you like that they do that? They bring all that stuff into the show, all the data and so forth? Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought they did a good job uh, putting it in. I thought there was one, the part where he's talking to like an expert in catfishing or whatever from some university in Glasgow, I think. Yeah, I love that guy. And he says like, what, you know, if I talk to her, like what questions would you want to ask? And he's like, oh, well, that's that's sort of the dream or whatever it is he says. <laughs> he kind of he kind of throws out these questions. Oh, but what's your thought, real name? <laughs> I thought that also that little thing shed a little bit of light on like what do people who study this, you know, for a living, who spend all their time thinking about this, like what questions they have rather than the questions I kind of have. But they were basic, and, right? They were just basic. Like, why did you do this? <laughs> right. But then there was all, there were a couple of other ones. Um, there was one about like, would you do it again? I don't know. I mean, it was just sort of interesting that those are things that he would be interested in. 
uh, rather than a bunch of other things that I would think that somebody who thought about it. So anyway, I, I thought they did a good job with that. I mean, I think they did a good job with everything. I mean, like like Kevin said. Save it for the review, Toby. It's oh, yeah, coming up whatever. right now. <laughs> All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Sweet Bobby? It is a podcast that came out late in the year, and it is brand new, and it is a hit podcast, and it is bingeable right now. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Sweet Bobby? Um, I'm going to go thumbs up with this because, number one, I'm fascinated by the whole catfishing phenomenon and why people do it and how people get drawn into it and how people get exposed. But in this case, this is like the freaking like penultimate catfishing story of all catfishing stories. And it's told by an empathetic and well-trained and well-respected journalist. And you have access to the people at the heart of the case. There are some things that I would have changed. Um, There are some answers that I didn't get that I wanted. But overall, I just thought this was a really interesting story. Toby Ball. Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up. I mean, I think the first three episodes are just superior. The writing is great. I mean, we talked to well, I guess if you're skipped to this, you haven't heard it. But, you know, the writing's really good. They, you know, they do a great job of kind of laying things out and keeping you know, they they play honestly with you, right? It, it's there for you to figure out if you're thinking about it in the right way. I, I agree with what Kevin had said earlier about how the second half of it kind of slows down. And it seems to me that it has sort of the serial formula, which is that you take this inherently pretty interesting story and you go into it hoping that you're going to get some kind of insight on the end, like whether who did it or why they did it or whatever. And I think like Serial, it doesn't come to a super satisfying ending as far as that stuff goes. But, you know, it's like, how much do you hold the podcasters to blame for that? I mean, I think that's the only thing that keeps it from being just like exceptional is is that part of it. Because I think, you know, the things that they could control, I think they just did an incredible job with. So it's a big thumbs up. And the first three episodes are just are, are amazing. Kevin Flint. I'm going thumbs sideways. I'll tell you, I walked in here ready to go thumbs down. Wow. But you guys kind of talked me up saying, well, I can't really give it a thumbs down. I thought that the first half was really great. You know, it was told well, but right off the start, we're promised two things. We're going to find out who the catfisher is, and then we're going to find out his or her motivations. And the second half, once we have our big reveal and we know who it is, the rest of it just kind of falls flat. You know, I wasn't really interested in where it was going after that. So while it has, you know, some strengths, I just thought, yeah, this probably should have launched this with an answer to that question, as opposed to saying, we're going to give you an answer. We're going to try to give you an answer because we're still working on it. Hmm. It didn't work out for me. So I'm just going to go thumb sideways. Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up for this podcast. I think the first three episodes were as close to perfect in terms of writing and editing as a podcast like this could be. I have never experienced a podcast mystery like this before where I was legit on my toes. And when I figured it out, realized it was there the whole time. I've just incredibly impressive feat of writing and editing and really a wonderful story selection and presentation of it. As to the second three episodes, I disagree with Love of My Life, Kevin Flynn, insofar as I don't think it falls flat. I just think that that the wrong promise was made. I would actually keep most of it intact. I would keep searching for the motivations. I would keep doing all the things you did. I would just make a different promise. Uh, I thought the stuff, the family stuff was incredibly moving and engaging. I thought the legal stuff was incredibly moving and engaging. I learned a lot. I just feel like the promise fell flat, but not the three episodes. So big thumbs up for me for Sweet Bobby. All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section. The business section. We have a Crime Writers on After Show that is available in your feeds right now for our Patreon supporters uh, who support, what, the $5 level? Uh, Kevin, what is going on in our Patreon After Show today? Well, we're going to be talking about the new developments in the Scott Peterson case. Yes. There was a resentencing, and there's a possibility of a new murder trial. That's right, and we're going to talk about my very controversial opinion about this case. Yes, yeah, but we're also... <laughs> We're also going to talk about our murder mystery dinner that Lara roped Toby and I into where we got dressed up in costume and played characters and had people pay a lot of money for wine and uh, to 
consider us suspects in a murder. Yeah. I heard it was fun. Okay, we'll save it for the podcast, right? Save it for the podcast. Uh, Kevin, what else have we got going on on our Patreon right now? Uh, well, we have a new episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club is out now. Wow. They looked at the book, My Sister, the Serial Killer. It's mm. fiction. Yes. But uh, Toby had a really great panel. Toby, can you tell us what is coming up next month so folks can start reading now? Yeah, it's the new Anthony Horwitz. It's called A Line to Kill. Uh, I have a person you may have heard of named Rebecca Lavoie is going to yes. be uh, joining me and I two will. other people. Janet uh, Varney. And- Janet Varney and Shirley Layrow. Yeah. Uh, to discuss it. I'm actually further along at this point than I usually am in these books, which is making me a little nervous. Um, you won't forget. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good read. Uh, it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. Coming soon. Can I just ask you a question generally? Can we like talk a little bit about like uh, when we do this lie line to kill conversation? Can we talk just a little bit about the, the conceit of the Hawthorne series generally? I think it's really important. I, I'm no. really hoping we can. No, oh. we can't. That's all right. That's then I'm not showing up. All not right, showing well, up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't watch you anyway. No. Yeah. Of course. It's a book. Oh. It's a book conversation. Of course, we talk about that. You, you know. You know. It's funny. Did you catch? I don't know how far you were into the book, but did you catch that? Like the the British title is like mentioned. It's like I think the British title is like a line about killing or something like oh, that. Oh, really? Oh, they always like change the American title slightly. Yeah. And I think the British title is like a line about killing, and the American title is a line to kill. Anyway, um, so Kevin, what else have we got going on our Patreon right now? Yeah, you should sign up right now for the Crime Writers on Patreon Holiday Party. We're having a virtual party again this year on December 20th, 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Grab your eggnog, get on the computer, uh, have a toast and holiday cheer with Rebecca and I and special guests. Yes. Uh, What kind of special guests? I don't know. Who are we inviting? Can can I be a special guest? (laughs) I'm a special guest. I suppose so. I have some ideas. Jeez. I have some ideas. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. I think maybe that we, we could have... have some podcast friends. Like maybe we could have some podcast do you friends. Do you want do you want to organize this, Lara? I'm like Julie McCoy. Yeah, I have an idea. <laughs> we we have a couple of West Coast podcast friends we should think about inviting. I have some ideas. I have some ideas. <laughs> All right. Everybody so else is taking over this. That's fine. I'm just going to get my eggnog and shut the fuck up. Are you saying we should keep it in our pants and let you run the show? Well, I don't care. All right, let's do it. So, Kevin Flynn, before we go back to the program, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Jackie DeHunt and Peggy Jackman. Bless you. Bless you guys. And thank you to all of you who support us at Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You could support the show and get our four podcasts that we make there just for you. Those of you who support us. Thank you very much. Moving on. Collins Street Fruitcake is the best. North, South, East and West. For more than a century, the Collins Street Bakery in Corsicana, Texas, was known worldwide for its fruitcake. Although they baked and shipped millions of colorful holiday desserts in their signature red tins, the company was awash in red ink. Different things were being cut. Our staff stopped getting raises. There were layoffs. It was affecting the staff, it was affecting the community. It wasn't until a junior bookkeeper noticed an unusual bank transaction that the cause was clear. Someone had been embezzling millions from the company. Someone who had been living a private lifestyle of lavish shopping sprees, private jets, and Rolex watches. His story was, of course, that they had inherited this money. And we're going like, hmm, pretty good inheritance, I guess. Just in time for Christmas, fruitcake fraud digs into the massive white-collar crime. The documentary leans into the quirky elements of the scheme, the famous business, and the unassuming couple caught with their fingers in the proverbial cookie jar. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for fruitcake fraud. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Lara Bricker. Yes. Why is fruitcake so important to this story? Um, Because I think if this was a story about a fish factory or a clothing store, I don't think it would have the same appeal. 
I think there is just something about fruitcake. Um, you know, like I used a line in my book and I, I have this like sarcastic receptionist who's like, that lady's nuttier than a five pound fruitcake. There is just something about fruitcake that makes anything, I hate to say it, that happens around a fruitcake factory kind of interesting. Huh. So the fact that to me, this whole embezzlement situation happens around a fruitcake factory I'm just drawn into that where I wouldn't be drawn in if it was another type of business. I mean, hello, it's the Christmas season. What's that great scene in like Christmas vacation where they're putting like 5,000 fruitcakes on that guy's desk when Clark Griswold walks in to talk, you know, get his Christmas bonus. So fruitcakes are just funny because who eats fruitcakes? Toby, do you eat fruitcakes? Not if I can help it. I'm not going to lie. Like- I almost ordered some after watching this. I looked them up. You can get two for 55 bucks if you order them on the mail. From I was going to order them to you for you guys for Christmas. Do it. Like, pre- I'm Christmas dying, presents. dying to try it. You can get me them. Too. 55 bucks it's, for yeah. two. Get them for me, man. All the stuff we review has these products that are so expensive. I couldn't I get you, you guys Von Dutch hats. I couldn't get you guys fruit you cakes. You can't buy me a $22 mm. Christmas gift. I got you something way better than that. All right. Well, no, I, I want to like, go back to the- I was going to get you a real one. They're like 50 bucks for, for a two. fruit cake that you're not going to like. For two. For two. What's more expensive, two. the Von Dutch hat or the deluxe fruit cake from I Collins want the deluxe fruit cake. You can expense it. You can write it off. It's a work expense, Toby. It's a Jesus. present. You can't write off presents, yes, Christmas presents. Jesus. Of course you can. <laughs> Corporate gifts. All right, Kevin. Okay, tell yeah. it to the IRS. Can we just put, they're not even checking. No one works there. So Kevin, can we just please talk about like the factory footage at least? Oh my God, Because Laura's right. The, the, the setting in the fruitcake factory, like. Does well, matter. yeah, I mean, there is a, a bit of quirkiness to the whole story because it revolves around a manufacturer that manufactures fruitcakes, mm-hmm. right? It would still be a, a serious white-collar crime if they uh, made end tables and sewing machines and whatnot. But because it's fruitcake, it becomes a little absurdist. And they add all the so, um, the music that's like klezmer Christmas music and right, minor right, because key it's Christmas also, music. Yeah, because it's associated with Christmas as well. But I'd say the B-roll is excellent, right? The question is, well, how do we showcase fruitcake? How do we make it fun and sexy? And the production company just ran with it. There's fruitcake bowling. They put the fruitcake tins on statues and stuff. They even display the dollar amount of the, uh, the embezzlement on like the marquee of the local movie theater. Um, in fruitcakes. <laughs> yeah. And then there's all, all these shots of the assembly line. I could have done with fewer shots of like diamonds rolling off the assembly line and mm. watches and stuff like that. But for the most part, I thought they're like, okay, they're embracing the inherent humor in, in it, baked in. <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. Baked in. Yes. But the people that were interviewed did not. But the people, Toby, I mean, the story is what it is, right? It's a corporate fraud. And I see from your notes, I I think we feel similarly about this. The people are the most interesting part about this, right? They're amiable. They're interesting. And it's like 1955 in this town, right? Like, is this the town that time forgot? Corsicana, Texas? Uh, They want to give you that impression. Well, by the way, (laughs) Corsicana, Texas is also where Navarro College, home of Cheer, another Netflix documentary. Yeah, Yeah, we actually saw some Navarro College uh, students eating some of the fruitcakes in a very small one of those quick cut scenes there. Anyway, is it not 1955 in this town, Toby Ball? Yeah, it's, yeah, in ways good and bad, I guess. Correct. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, I not to tip my hand, but I don't think much of this documentary i thought it was there wasn't a whole hell of a lot going on after about 20 minutes in i think they could have made a really interesting documentary that they decided not to do so yeah i mean it's it's a lot of amiable people there's that sort of older society woman who's pretty hilarious i thought can i offer you all a refreshment i have coors beer i have pink mom champagne i have white wine i have red wine oh i've got some pomegranate vodka the cat lady? No, 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 no. The, My future self? The lady on her chair with a 1950s hat, like Lisa the house Goyne. dress. She was the... With the 18 sets of china behind her? Yeah. The book club la- lady. <laughs> well, no, they weren't book clubs, Toby. They were literary societies yeah, or something. Of 200 people? They were literary societies. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go to that book club. No one's talking about the book. No. Um... Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I guess it's the best thing you have going for it is you've got these sort of amiable Texans talking about this 
quite honestly, not super interesting crime that took place. Yeah, you know, despite like the size and the length of the crime, it is a pretty straightforward embezzlement case. What it was missing... $17 million? You think that's straightforward embezzlement for a fruitcake factory? Well, no, he said that's the size of it. Okay, it's pretty big. That's big. Yeah. It went on for a long time. But beyond that, there are a couple of interesting things, but is it 90 minutes worth of embezzlement case? And I don't know. Like I said, you know, all of a sudden at the end, we kept getting the same B-roll of the assembly line. I think it's kind of symbolic of the entire documentary. It just kind of runs out of steam halfway through. What it really kind of needed and didn't have is it needed uh, an agent, Doug Matthews from McMillions, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who could lean in to it and put a little bit of holy shit into the discussion, add some urgency to it and some wonder. Everybody was really just too polite, almost polite to a fault talking about it. a little bit of eye rolling, maybe a little bit of shade thrown. But nobody was like, you fucking believe this. And so the production crew is trying to make this fun. It could have been fun like McMillions, but it just wasn't. Nobody else was trying to make it fun. That, I think, is what I was taking away from this. I'm, I'm looking at the setup for this. I'm like, fruitcake fraud, a crime in a fruitcake factory. I'm like, a perfect, cozy mystery, murder <laughs> she wrote type of holiday event. But the problem is that they couldn't decide whether they're going to lean into the funny, zany part of the fruitcake factory or like the serious nature of Sandy embezzling all this money from this factory in this small town where everybody knows everybody. So there was like a dark side that was like people that are really upset and really hurt. And then there's what could have been a really funny side. And I think we needed to pick one or the other to make this a stronger story. And we didn't. I would have gone with the zany fruitcake factory, cozy murder mystery holiday story on steroids. Everybody that was interviewed had like cans of fruitcake behind them. That just made me laugh. The lady with the cats behind her. What the (laughs) heck was that? I like to collect uh, napkin rings with cats. I like to collect a lot of things with cats on it. I'm like, oh, my God. She's like, I really like cats. I got cat teapots, cat this, cat that. And then she was like, I would give all my money to make a gold floor at the cat sanctuary. I'm like, yes, I would, too. So, Laura, I kept thinking, too, that like this could be like a... um like an absurdist, like Dr. Death on TV, like type yes. thing. I can imagine that. But there was also actually one kind of dark and real moment in the documentary that they yes. just, that it bothered me that they just kind of like glossed it right the fuck by, which is symmetric, who's yes. the only person of color in this whole thing. And by the way, we see it, maybe the only black person in this whole factory or this whole like uh, town. I mean, I know she's not, but like that's the way that that by the portrayal of this town in this documentary, Mm -hmm. you would be led to believe that she was the only person of color in this town. And she actually points out that she's put in the position to accuse a powerful white man of stealing. And she knows that that's putting her in a bad spot. Here I am a person of the black American race, and I have just identified that a person of another race was taking something that didn't belong to them. And that moment is allowed to come and go in like four seconds. And that that actually kind of bothered me. And you may know to that too, Lara. Yeah, because I felt like, again, we're going back and forth with like, what's the identity of the show? But then, you know, I'm just going to like give an example. So when you and Kevin can can attest to this, when you're a news reporter or you're a journalist and you're out, you're interviewing and you're you're taking notes and you're interviewing people in a story. Eventually, there comes a time in the story where you like, for me anyway, I circle something on my little notepad and make a star next to it because I'm like, that is the heart of this story. Now, when we get to Symmetric, who's this accounting clerk who's only been on the job for a year and she has only been on the job a short time, she is like, Where's the missing money coming from? They task her with finding this. She figures it out that the checks are written by Sandy, the controller, the mild-mannered guy who, by the way, only makes like 50000 a year, who's like driving Jaguars. And then she's like, points out this race issue. And I'm like, not only is the race issue, there's a woman issue. There's an issue of her being somebody that's younger, that's in a, a less senior position. There's so many issues there. I'm like, that is a huge issue. Worry about the math issue, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm like, I would have circled that and put a little star next to it. The other thing I would have put a little circle and a star next to is 
what's the background on this guy, Sandy, and everybody in this little small town that nobody thought it was crazy that he's going to Aspen and Napa (laughs) and Santa Fe and has 38 cars and has a Bentley and a Porsche and is like buying out the Neiman Marcus at so much so that they give him nicknames. Like there were parts in this that I felt like could have been explored more, but I felt like that race issue back to Symmetric was something that was mentioned. And again, the tone was shifting. So we go from like zany fruitcake to this pretty, you know, legit serious issue that could have been explored, but we don't explore it further. Toby? Yeah, I just, this has been made because they want it to be like the Christmas true crime documentary and people yes. will like revisit it every Christmas and that'll be the <laughs> thing, right? I mean, I think that's the thing. But I think the Hallmark Christmas movie of true crime docs. I I think this movie, like I think, how would Jordan Peele make this movie? Because really, the story is symmetric, and she's this young black woman who comes into this absolutely white, uh, white as fuck. These guys all seem very like very nice guys, but she's coming into an all white, all older company, and she uncovers almost immediately this massive fraud that's been let go and she makes it clear that she's very aware about the power dynamics that are going on around her so i think you could make a very interesting sort of fraught story like if i was going to if i was going to turn this into like a made for tv thing which i'm not but if i was but you're saying jordan peele should i think you're 100 right (laughs) i think that that would be the interesting take on it Right. And I and I think it's it could be a very, very dark comedy uh, in that way. But I think that's again, it's disturbing because she's so clear about it and nobody else gives it any thought. And even that old society lady, Lisa or whatever her name is, is like, yeah, she's a real smart little girl or something. Exactly. So condescending. uh, So that to me seemed like the heart of the story. It gets almost no time. And. That that's just another problem with it. Well, two things. Uh, one about Symmetric, she, the idea again that everybody is so polite. I don't know if it's well. I got to live in this small fucking town, but everybody is so polite that even she expresses that in the most awkward way. She can't just come out and say, "Yeah, I'm a black woman accusing a white man," right? The way she says it is so non-active voice, so passive voice, you know, do not offend, right? I think is it was the intention of her to phrase it that way. But, you know, in the, in the end, hey, she's the hero because she's the one who figured it out. Second thing is you guys don't have to worry about somebody coming to do a TV adaptation of this story because the king of true crime dramatization... Uh-oh. Will Ferrell oh my God. <laughs> has been shooting a film called Fruitcake, and I think Julianne Moore, I think, is playing the wife. It's like the Dr. Death treatment all over it's again. It's like the Dr. Death treatment. Toby's rubbing his, 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 the, the bridge of his nose in anguish, uh, for those who can't see it, shaking his head. <laughs> it's going to be great. So maybe it'll be the dark comedy that everybody wishes was made instead. Listen, just because the other one was a fail, this one's going to be great. Remember, we all love Dr. Death. Remember, it was fucking fantastic. These true mm-hmm. crime things can be really, really fun and good. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially when they're like throwing like the Rolexes and the trash and stuff. Like I could just see like some the crazy fuck with scene. That? Why throw it in like, the water? What's up with that? It's crazy. But like I can see Will Ferrell doing something really funny with that. But I think that's, way, that's missing yeah. the point, I think. <laughs> you yeah. know, I just I just feel like that's not the story. But anyway. You're right. You're right. I mean, maybe it's Jordan. You're right. I think it's should be Jordan Peele. I do, by the way, do like the uh, the cop who like discovered all the watches and turned them all in. And then the cops came to hit the FBI came to him and he's like, well, I turned them all in like good for that guy. Yeah. I mean, and then later he's walking around with a Rolex saying, <laughs> oh, I already had this sweet. All right. Well, I think we should do, we do let's let our listeners know Lara Bricker. Should people check out fruitcake fraud from discovery plus streaming lots of places, thumbs up or thumbs down for fruitcake fraud. Um. So when I first started watching this, I was like, thumbs up because I was like, oh my God, embezzling in a fruitcake factory. This is crazy. As the documentary went on, 
it kind of lost its way a little bit for me. So I'm going to go thumbs sideways because it is the Christmas season. And I love the fact that we have a Christmas themed true crime documentary. It's only an hour and a half. And also, I mean, I kind of enjoyed all of the uh, fruitcake love that the people like, first of all, the guy that owns the company, Bob McNutt. Yeah. Like, Mm. could you have a better name to own a fruitcake factory? And he, I mean- Tony McFruitcake, I think, would be a better name. Exactly, Bob McNutt. If nothing else, I'm going to order some of this fruitcake, which he compares to the Dom Perignon of the fruitcake world. I bet they sold a lot of fucking fruitcake this year. I got to tell you, I really want some. After after what I said. I feel like I need to try this fruitcake, if nothing else. So I'm going to go thumb sideways, and I'm going to order some fruitcake. If some listener feels like buying us some, I won't say no. (laughs) (laughs) Some fruitcake. Uh, Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for fruitcake fraud? All right, we just hit like reason number three why I found this all so annoying is that in some ways it's just this big ad for this kind of fruitcake because uh, everybody who watches is like, oh, I should check out that fruitcake. I never thought about you that want, fruitcake. You, come on, and you want And he says them, it at the very end. He's like, well, maybe people will want to check out the fruitcake. So it's like a long ad for this kind of fruitcake. There's just not much to it. Like, you watch the first 20 minutes and find out everything you need to know, and then the rest of it's all kind of like, just like details that aren't that interesting. Fruitcake so, porn. <laughs> it does have the hole in the middle. <laughs> oh, Kevin, Kevin Flynn. Oh, my goodness, Kevin. Go ahead, Toby. Sorry. I just got it. So I guess we went there. I'm, I'm a thumbs down. I, you know, whatever. It's... Seems like some nice people in it, but it's it, there's not a whole lot that going on. Hey, Laura, remember the old guy said you got to eat it with your fingers. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, being <shut> cut out. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. All right, Kevin Flynn. <laughs> that wasn't what I thought she said. Kevin Flynn. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Kevin Flynn. Uh, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to go thumbs down. I was really hoping this was going to be something better, something more fun along the lines of a McMillions, because it certainly... Could have been. My thought is that this shares a little something in common with my review of Sweet Bobby is that once we are told the identity of the perpetrator, that there's still a lot of falling action in this story and it kind of loses its way. And I don't really feel a, you know, a great reason to invest another you know, the one third or one half of the story time to what happens next. Hmm. So, but I tell you, I think I'm, I, I've never really liked fruitcake. I usually eschew it, but I might try it next time I see it. Like I said. What is I, the green shit on top? It's just like a candy, gummy candy thing. And the red thing, is it cherry? It's a red gummy candy cherry thing. I really, really want to try this fruitcake now, even though I totally dissed fruitcake last I'm week. I'm obsessed with it now. I can't yeah, think of Yeah, like I said, else. if a listener sent us some, I would not say no to a bite. Um, I, listen, if it weren't for the minor key and klezmer adaptations of Christmas songs that are the soundtrack to this, I'd be a thumbs down. But I was so delighted by the art direction of this only. And one of the characters that we discussed during our spoilerful part, who I think should have been the center of it, uh, I would give it a thumbs down. But I'm going to give it a thumb sideways because those two elements alone were enough to make it palatable. And I do think that if you want like a sugar-free gum true crime experience to watch with your family over the holidays. Maybe your mother-in-law is over and she's like an investigation discovery type who likes watching stupid murder shows and you just want something to sit down and watch with her. This is perfectly serviceable for that. So I can't get it a thumbs down because it might become useful for you later. So uh, thumb sideways for me for fruitcake fraud. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the the week. Psychologists at the University of Liverpool have come up with a first-of-its-kind diagnostic tool. They've created a questionnaire to determine whether or not your cat is psychotic. That's right. If you've ever (laughs) wondered whether that malevolent stare you get from your tabby is mere indifference or signs of a murder fantasy, you can now find out. Known as the Cat Triarchic Plus Questionnaire, the test helps measure undesirable traits like boldness, meanness, and disinhibition. After 46 questions about mood changes, aggressions, and reactions to being petted, the experts say you can tell whether your cat is actually 
a psychopath. Mm. The goal isn't just to determine the murderous intentions of your pet feline. Researchers hope to identify undesirable traits that lead to owners abandoning their cats. Because who wants a pet that is silently planning your assassination? Panel, how can you tell that your cat is psychopathic? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, well, I think that my cats, of course, are totally not psychopathic because they are my little, like, baby cats. But I will say that I judge it by the number of dead bodies that I oh. find in my house. Oh, sounds oh. not psychopathic yeah. at all. Um, they're not towards me, but towards others, they might be. And I, I did, in fact, have to get out um, the little lacrosse stick and fling a dead body out today. So somebody in my house might be a psychopath. Hmm. Toby Ball. They, they all are. I can save them the money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, some of them, they, they, they hide it to different degrees. Yeah. But when the, when, the, when the lights are off, they're all psychos. And I love which cats. Of, which of your cats is the best at hiding their psychopathy? Uh, uh, that, that's Hunter. Cause he's just, he just doesn't get around much. Yeah. He's very, Olaf, Olaf is like the least Olaf is, mm. is like impulse control is, is basically at zero. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Kevin Flynn, how can you tell that your cat is a psychopath? Uh, cause he's sewing a skin suit <laughs> and he puts the lotion on the skin. Yes. Or else he gets the hose again. It must put on the lotion. All right. We should probably end the show on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, we have a dog of the week this week just oh. for you, Rebecca. Yeah, no psychopaths. Favorite. No psychopathic dogs. It hasn't killed anything. It hasn't left any animals or dead bodies that in the house. In fact, this dog, Gizmo, was recently in a wedding in a little tuxedo uh, with his owner, Angelica Braheny. Nice. And he is Angelica, in an adorable yeah. little <gasps> outfit. Oh, it's the Married with Podcast Angelica, whose relationship we've been tracking for years. Yeah. Remember? Oh, is it? Oh, well, anyway, yes. the little dog is in this adorable outfit. And I was like, oh, my God. That's it. Oh my gosh. I love this dog. That I dog love his has outfit. An my cats need outfits. Yeah. Um, beautiful picture, Angelica. So big props for this dog cat of the week. Yes, Angelica is one of our favorite listeners. She's been writing into Mary with Podcast from the beginning. I think she's had a question in like 70% of our episodes. Yeah, long before she oh. got married. Yeah. Are we responsible for her getting married? One of her no, questions was but- literally. How do I get my parents to let my boyfriend sleep over? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> now she's married to that guy. It's pretty amazing. Bring your cute dog. <laughs> All right. Wow. Laura Bricker. Of course, folks can submit their pets, any kind of pet, or they don't have to be pets. It can be any kind of animal to be cat of the week. And of course, they can do that at uh, crimewritersonet at gmail.com or on any of our Facebook groups. But Laura Bricker, if folks want to tweet them to you, how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Toby Ball, if folks want to pitch to you their treatment of the fruitcake fraud as a movie or television series, how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Toby Ball and H, but I wanted to do a quick uh, cat of the week addendum. Do it. uh, My sister and her family's uh, beloved dog Willow passed away last week. And I just wanted to... uh, Acknowledge that uh, Willow was a great dog. Uh, had a lot of fun with her over the years, um, and it was, it was very sad. So anyway, R.I.P. Willow. Just wanted to, just wanted to say that. I'm so glad you did. Kevin Flynn, what is your handle on Twitter? We can't even follow that with something snarky. No, it's true. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can find that by going to our Facebook page and clicking Join the Group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredibly handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. 
This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we pick off whatever the hell those green things are on top of our fruitcake. Boogers. Send me some Collins Street fruitcakes, guys. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. How are you? I didn't go through my pre-recording checklist ritual. So what's that? God only knows what's going to happen tonight. What's your pre-recording ritual? I listen to the same ridiculous song every time. Let me guess. What? Let me guess. Mindless. Let me guess. And it's sort of upbeat. (laughs) If you could, if you can guess this, I bet you if I gave you an hour and you could access the internet and everything, I don't think you'd be able to guess it. Or give us a clue. You've never heard of this person. Well, I'm out then. So, I, Toby, how are we only learning seven years in that you have a pre-recording song ritual? It's not something I'm particularly proud of, but yeah, I was telling, me neither. when I came up, when I came up, my parent, my uh, my family was like, "I was like, oh shit, I'm not gonna have time to do my my ritual." And they're like, "What's your ritual?" <laughs> yeah, even your family doesn't know. And I said, I listen to the same song every time. And Ollie was like laughing their ass off. This is so fascinating. Really? What's yeah. the song? Do you want me to share it I with think you we for should, a second? Sh- I think Tell we should listen song. and see if it like inspires yeah. us as well, Toby. Wait. You're going to laugh your ass off because this is like the last like type of oh song God. in the world. Oh my God. Is it Party in the USA? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's worse. I can see Toby being like, okay, stop sharing your screen and Kevin's going to play it through our board. I'm sorry we're not doing this live. It's all right. I know. I'm ready. Oh, here it comes. See, mm. getting ready to talk to true crime. Yeah. Toby's way fucking cooler than I thought he was. I have, I, how did this even happen? This is amazing. Wait, we're not even to the chorus yet. Oh, <laughs> everything about it for seven years you've been playing that uh, i don't know if it's been seven it's probably it's been like four or five perfect wow Every I love it. everything about it that's what's going through my head right before i jump on oh my freaking <laughs> god well this is going to be a great newsletter it's incredible yeah. partners in crime media, media.